Hi, I'm Sean O. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. The world knows Stephen Glover is Steve-O, a daredevil famous for his stunts with the Jackass crew on MTV, a spin-off series Wild Boys, and four Jackass movies and counting. It's landed him on Dancing with the Stars and a Comedy Central roast. When I met Steve-O in 2010, he was still newly clean and sober and pursuing a second life as a stand-up comedian. We reconnected in the summer of 2020 over Zoom in two separate conversations. We talked about getting mentored in comedy by Dane Cook, how he joined the ranks of touring stand-up comedians almost immediately because of his celebrity, and had to figure out how to give everything he had to make it work. We also discussed the Ringling Brothers Barnum & Bailey Clown College. He studied there while I didn't get accepted. Uh, His relationship with his father, and his new comedy special, Gnarly, which is available now through his website at stevo.com. So let's get to it! So, Steve-O, uh, last things first, uh, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, you were sober, but I don't know if you remember this, but I was actually at one of your first sober <clears throat> comedy shows at back in 2010 at Comedy Juice. Yeah, I mean, dude, I, I had heard that when I got this interview, uh, you know, scheduled, that you were at the very first show at the Hollywood Improv, and I remember it so well. Because uh, I went on stage immediately after Sarah Silverman and, uh, and then immediately before Dane Cook. Right. I just felt like I was swimming with sharks. And I was doing stand-up for like arguably the first time because the only time I'd ever done stand-up before that, I was totally loaded. And um, yeah, wow, it was, that was heavy, dude. It was a big deal, man. I remember storming into a, uh, an interview. I showed up to do an interview for uh, what's called a uh, young Hollywood or something. And they were just cycling people through interviews. They were they, one after another. It was like a revolving door. And I showed up for mine and they said, Oh, Dane cooks in there right now. Just go ahead and run right in there. Just barge right in. It'll be, it'll be great. <laughs> so sure enough, I, I walked right into Dane cooks interview, just interrupted it the way they told me to. Um, he gave me a big hug was super nice. And I said, you know, dude, I've, uh, tried stand-up in the past and it's something i really want to get into and he said great we we'll get you we'll get, we'll get you up uh, at the improv next week i'll give you my cell phone and i was like whoa and 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 true to his word man he gave me a cell number and i spent that that whole week just furiously writing and taking it so seriously you know and like rewriting getting people to come over to my apartment and and run it by them and you know and i went i went to an open mic you know and um and then and then that was it that was precisely what he was talking about that next week we'll get you upstage and you got to witness it (laughs) yeah i it was one of those uh serendipitous moments or great coincidences uh synchronicity people talk about a lot um sure what I remember too. So sorry to sorry to ramble on so much, but it's just such an exciting thing I love to talk about. That um, not only did Dane Cook arrange for me to get on stage that night, but he went on immediately after me. And right. then, as soon as he got off stage, 
we both sat down for him to critique my performance. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget this. He said, the first thing he said was, okay, I'm not sending you back to the drawing board, <laughs> which was uh, like the fucking greatest thing I could hear. He was, I was like, I had, to, I had to process it for a second. I was like, not sending you back to the drawing board. Okay, so I don't have to start over. Like, there's, like my material was funny. You know, he says, he, he, he said, uh, you got something there, you know, or like, you don't have to rewrite it. This is, he's, 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 he said, I'm more concerned with your, your, your delivery and, right. and your presence, you know, and your presence, you know, like uh, he said, um, you got to relax up there, dude. Cause I was so nervous and I was like, I mean, people have asked me a lot, like is uh stand up more, um, you know, scary than stunts. And, and I, on that night, I would say that was as scary as any stunt. You know, I, because, because the, the act that I wrote was, was very much uh, like it, sequential, if that makes sense, you know? Like, should I, have, should I have forgotten like one little piece of it, then the whole rest of it would have crumbled because it had to go in a certain order. I was so nervous. And he said I needed to relax up there. <laughs> uh, but then what happened was uh, I was just so fired up about it that I arranged to get myself on stage. The, the comedy juice was Wednesday night. Right. I was so excited about it. I got myself on stage Friday night at the Laugh Factory. And I showed up and there's Dane Cook. <laughs> and it was the same thing again. You know, I went on stage and he went on stage or maybe the other way around that night. And, uh, and, and, and it, was, it wasn't even planned. And we sat down and he gave me notes again. And um, that second time at the Laugh Factory, he said, all right, now you're too relaxed. I mean, come on, you look lethargic up there. He's like, you got to remember, this is a performance, dude. You know, you got to give him, you got to give him some energy. You know, you got to, you know, like, so I had overcomes. And it was, it's crazy because then the, the next night, Saturday night, same thing. We did it all over again. I was like launched into this like crazy comedy apprenticeship kind of a deal under the wing of Dane Cook. And uh, I mean, fuck, that was cool. I I also strongly believe that it it wasn't nearly as much like the actual nuts and bolts, you know, the actual like tutelage of Dane Cook, but rather just the fact that he took his time to help me, you know, to encourage me. It, that put so much wind in my sails that uh, I, I, you couldn't keep me out of the comedy clubs. You couldn't keep me out of the comedy clubs. And I never thought that there was any, even any money in what I was doing because these clubs would give you like 20 bucks for getting on <laughs> the stage. Right. Yeah, the club gives you 20 bucks. I was just like, this is a joke. I'm, I'm just doing it for fun. But then uh, I kept doing it and I kept doing it. And, and, um, and, and soon enough, we had Jackass 3D come out. And I went to uh, Howard Stern to promote Jackass 3D. And I told him, yo, Howard, dude, I'm doing stand-up every night. Dude, I'm having a blast, dude. It's going great. I want to do a gig in New York City tonight. You know, like, <laughs> you know, the movie's, the movie's in theaters tonight. But whatever, man, I want to be doing stand-up in the comedy club. And I did. I went to the cellar that night. And um, the crazy thing happened was uh, my, I was working without an agent at that time. And my lawyer called up and he said, hey, dude, I don't quite get it, but I'm getting calls from all over the country 
from comedy clubs <laughs> asking to book you. And I was like, I was like, cool. And then that's when I found out that it was like actually being a touring stand-up, you know, as a headliner is like real business, you know? And, uh, and I went to take a meeting with an agent, just, just a meeting. And, and this guy, this guy was hilarious. He says, at this meeting in this big boardroom, and it was just me and my lawyer and the one agent. And he says, I know we don't represent you. And he says, I, he says, I know we don't represent you. But what I did was I made a few phone calls and I just put, put the feeler out there to say, if I was to represent you, would we be able to drum up any business for you? And I do have this. And he had this manila folder like thing right mm -hmm. and he just he just plopped it on the he says i do have this these are like firm like official offers for comedy clubs <laughs> and it was like oh he plopped a whole fucking tour like down <laughs> on the table there was a whole fucking tour dude and it was like it was just to me a fucking stupid amount of money and i was just like wait so now I'm going on a fucking headlining tour where like, I've got like 20 minutes. I've got like a, I've got like a fucking 20 minute act. Yeah. And, and I just got, I just got launched into it headlong. And, uh, you know, I can see where that would rub a lot of people the wrong way. You know, like, fuck this asshole, you know, going on a headlining tour with like a, with 20 minutes. Of, but in my defense, I took this shit so seriously. And I, I fucking, I gave such a fuck about it and I worked so hard and I had such like a real hour. It, it you know, it happened in real time. And, um, you know, and fuck, from that beginning show, from the very first like engagement, I, I told the crowd um, before I got off stage, you know, I will not go anywhere and I will not do anything until I take a photo with every single one of you guys that want to. And that's exactly what I've said every single show for the last 10 years since that happened. Um, I've not, I just feel so strongly that it's a, that it's a, a selfish self-serving exercise on my part to, to get to send as many people home with a photo as possible so that they can post their photo. And it's just my little grassroots way of getting people to, uh, to get the word out that they came to see a Steve-O show and, and that they had a good time. And I think that that, as well as how hard I've worked to put on a good show, um, is, is, you know, is the only reason why I'm still going, you know? And also, when I, you know, for all the people who might be offended to hear that I went out on a tour with 20 minutes of material, um, <laughs> the, good, the good news is that when I, when I started out the tour, I did a 20-minute stunt set every show. And I'd be doing, I'd be doing fucking two shows a night, like on Fridays and Saturdays. And I'm out there fucking like slashing my tongue with broken light bulbs twice a night, <laughs> like squeezing lemon juice in my eyeballs and fucking like just crazy. I would light my head on fire and have people blowing fireballs out of my head. People I didn't even know just out of the crowd, <laughs> you know, like it was genuine mayhem. There's no question about that. So I, I refuse to uh to feel bad about about you know sort of getting a, a head start like that you know right because i i fucking fought for it man you know I, my <laughs> approach my approach to stand-up comedy has never been 
conventional. It's, it's, it's just never been. And, I, and I've taken advantage of everything that I can bring to the table as a stand-up comedian. I've just, I just have more, you know, I, I've got more tools in my belt, you know, like, uh, and I bring them all to the show every time. So, um, so yeah, but now, with, now after a year, it's like about, about one year after I, I last saw Dan Cook, I showed up at the, the laugh, the laugh factory. Mm-hmm. Saw Dan Cook, saw Dan Cook, gave him a big hug. And he's like, dude, where you been? I go, dude, Dane, since I saw you last, I've, headlined my, my own my I've, I've headlined my own shows in 12 different countries <laughs> and he goes oh god comics hate comics must hate you <laughs> comics, comics must fucking hate you and uh and i didn't really get that sense and, and overall I, I know i know that there's been a, a couple comics that have he that have even been like outspoken Mm-hmm. about like about not approving of me doing stand up and like i i do re- i do regret that that i that i let i let that sentiment from those few people um like really make me a little bit self conscious and, and less about comics not accepting me it's a big regret that i have in life that i was that i've been timid about about like claiming myself as a stand-up comedian you know like on my social media anytime i've been promoting my my shows it's like i'm doing a show it's gonna be you know i've been like very a little bit self-conscious about saying i'm doing stand-up comedy you know come see me do stand-up comedy Mm -hmm. you know like because because there's like a part of me that that thinks people just don't want to accept me that way you know and then if i post something like that on social media that there's going to be some kind of contingent of just haters in the comments. Ah, oh, dude, you're not, you know. And, uh, you know, I wish that I wouldn't fucking have ever let haters dictate how I feel about what I'm doing or, or uh, you know, how I'm promoting my, the, my tour. And so that's just something that I'm working on. And I'm really, uh, really psyched to have come as far as I have, you know. Like, you know, and, and I just want, you know, I'm really, I'm excited to promote this special because boy, does it bring every fucking one of my tools out of the bag, dude. <laughs> I remember, I remember I taped my first comedy special for Showtime and, uh, it was fair enough. It was my, my, my early, it was my first hour. I was leaning into, uh, you know, the blue stuff. It was all just fucking, you know, graphics, you know, gratuitous sexual encounters, regaled. You know, in an uncomfortable fashion, and the only redeeming thing about it was that as I developed that hour over like those you know first five years, uh, I really um, you know admitted that I was a sex addict. That the, that the reason for all of these fucking uh, you know groupie sex stories and my regaling of them. You know, and, and how I used to treat my meet and greet after the shows for those first five years as an audition, <laughs> you know, to find out, like, to, to, to you know, figure out who I was going to be act out sexually with. Um, but, but then that hour developed into, okay, you know, like, it, it developed into sexual sobriety, you know, like, it, it turned into I'm a sex addict, and, and, and all of the material was 
about how uh, I tried to stop getting my dick sucked all the time. And that was, that had a little bit of merit. Still, it was, it was, I was green. And then whatever, you know, I taped that special. It came and went. I thought that that first special was going to like, you know, solve my problem. Now I'm going to be established. You know, now, now everyone's going to be like, Oh, look at Simo. He's a legit established. But, <laughs> but, but that, that special, that special coming out on Showtime changed nothing about my life. Nobody, I'd never heard about it from anybody. And I was just like, fuck it. You know, I just like kept going. And as right. I put together, as I put together the, uh, the second hour, which is what this new special is. Um, as at one night I was performing, just, you know, like putting, just working on the act, putting it together. And, and I just had this thought. I was in the middle of my set. I don't know where I was, but somewhere maybe in Wisconsin. And I just had this thought, holy shit, all of these crazy stories that comprise this new hour I'm putting together, like pretty much all fucking happened on camera. So what if I made, what if I made my next special, like performing the standup and I, and in post I edit into the fucking special, the interstitial footage of the stories I'm telling happening in like a multimedia fucking standup special. That's never happened. Like, holy fuck. I got so excited. So then right away, right away I decided that's it, dude. Fucking. I remember going to meet with the Jackass director, Jeff Tremaine. I was like, dude, I got this idea. Fuck, man, you'd be the director. Uh, and, 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 I, and I told it to him. He says, all right, man, tape your sets. You know, I fucking show me what it looks like. And um, I fucking recorded my, my next set. And here's the thing. It was, I think a lot of comics are like this, and it's a deadly fucking curse. Is that up to that point, and, and when was it? This was 2017 at this point. And, um, and, and up to, from, from 2010, when you saw my first show, which I did record and I did watch it, I showed it to people, mm-hmm. but for those, for those seven years, I had a lot of fucking trouble watching myself, watching video of myself to stand up. It's made me uncomfortable. And I think a lot of comics are, don't like playing back their set and watching it, you That's know, crazy. it's just like that. And, and, um, and I was very much that way, dude. I avoid watching my sets back on video, like, a lot. And, and that was just not a fucking good habit, man. Because when I taped the set and started editing in, you know, I'm, like, I'm an editor. I'm sitting there, like, editing in all the footage and putting it together. And, and right away, the first thing I learned was, this fucking works, you know? This, this fucking works. But here I'm watching, I'm watching that. They forced me to really study the stand-up. The first thing that I just couldn't fucking stand in my first special is littered with it, is this awkward laughing at my own joke, you know? I really fucking, there's just, it's just this insecure, like, <laughs> it's funny, right? <laughs> you know? Like, there's just so many little things that, that, that as I was forced to, I, like, there's no way I was gonna put together this draft you know, without like really, when you're editing, you watch something a fucking thousand times. God, I studied that stuff. And, and you know, was just, things made me cringe about what I was doing. And sure enough, I, I'm, I'm on tour. I addressed them. You know, like, at my, like for the first seven years of me doing stand-up, 
before I got into actually studying my set and editing, editing it, cutting in the footage, like there was more growth between 2017 and 2018 than there was in from 2010 to 20, you know, I mean, dude, it was, it was just, it, it was night and day. I feel like night and day. And still, you know, I, I watched this, this new special and I've come a long way since then even, but, but yeah, that, that was how the process happened. Let me, let me ask you this then. When I was watching Gnarly, it, it felt to me, uh, especially if you just, if I just looked at what you were saying on stage and removed all the footage, it felt to me like I was sitting in a meeting hearing your, your, your recovery qualification. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, there, part, there, there was certainly parts of that for sure. But, but but most people but most people in recovery don't have their their what it was uh what it was like and what happened captured right. on foot on film right so it's yeah. yeah no there there's 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 no doubt whatsoever that that there is a, a, a you know a strong a, a, i don't want to say strong but 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 a major component of that in there and I welcome it you know I'm not out there to really wave the flag of recovery too much but like that's part of my story and um I mean it's juicy as hell too you know I think that for I think that for the standard for this special it's like a war story you know I mean I suppose there's a little bit of recovery but yeah (laughs) and when I'm actually talking when I'm actually doing the pitch you know the, the recovery qualification. I like, I like that. Um, I, I don't do any war story in, in those. Well, what, what you also do with gnarly is you, you, you literally explode the myth that you can't do things in sobriety that you used to do when you were drunk. Right. high. For sure. You, yeah. you, you literally set yourself on fire in sobriety. <clears throat> for sure man yeah that that was the, that was the one thing that when i started making the drafts and god i made them over and over it was like oh i'm like there were so many things like, i don't like that i don't like the way i do that like I, you know or i'm gonna do this and, and so that first draft i kept the uh, interstitial footage and i just kept knocking out the the performance just deleting out the whole performance and film a new one, mm-hmm. and then I would I would plug the whole new performance into the same editing timeline and just shift around the clips to match where the, where they're supposed to go, and I just did that over and over and over. But as I did that, it, it started really bothering me. Fuck, this is all just such a a trip down memory lane. I just feel like fucking you know all the glory days like back here, you know, how crazy it used to be, and I and I just I had the sense that it was going to get really fucking depressing <laughs> to, 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 to live out, to live out my life telling old stories. Right. And I was like, I was like, dude, I like, it's just all old stories. And I just feel like such a fucking has been by, by telling old stories. And that's what I'm all about. So I was like, for each bit, let, 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 let each bit be an old story but then let it inspire something completely next level that's totally new. So it's like, that's how the, that's how the special plays can do this fucking crazy shit happened. And then, you know, I decided, fuck it. I'm going to, I'm going to bump it up a notch. So what I just did is completely fresh and new. Right. And then, and then there you have that. And so it's like old, new, old, new. And, and it just got me fired up, dude. It got me fired up to just 
take jackass stunts like to the next level, you know, which, which, which is no easy task. And, uh, and I did end up with, with skin grafts on 15% of my body, you know, doing that. And I don't regret it for a fucking second, man. I don't, I don't regret it for a second. And I think that now, and as I look into the future, well, what I already did, you know, I've got a new, a new hour that I'm touring with called the bucket list and I'm dispensed with, uh, history for that. There's no more, there's no more fucking dredging up old <laughs> shit from the past. I just went and did all new shit for, for my new hour. And uh, I can't wait until this coronavirus opens up comedy again, you know? Yeah. You know, you, you talk about, you know, wondering about the haters or the, the detractors, but at the same time, none of those comedians can probably claim that they're a professionally trained clown by Ringling Brothers. It's like you have, right. you have, you have a skill set. I do. I do. I, I like to consider myself a diverse, <laughs> a diverse entertainer. What I actually, uh, this is another fun fact. I actually auditioned for Ringling in 1997. Wow. But I, but I didn't get in. 1997, they closed it down. Yeah. That was the last year. I, I didn't get in and then they closed it. So <laughs> So oh part- yeah i went i went in 97 and then they closed it in 98 yeah what did you what did you learn from that experience being in I mean, ringling only, brothers the only thing that you had to learn was still walking other okay. than that it was other than that it was largely an exercise in uh taking what strengths you had and and you know like whatever they could once you got into clown college they just wanted you to be as fucking impressive as you could, whatever your strengths were, they were going to kind of zero in on that. Okay. Um, they, they, they wanted you to try everything. They wanted you to develop what, what you had. I mean, certainly everything from dance to skills, acrobatics, you know, clowning, fucking miming even like uh, all, all the gags. It, it was, it was a grueling 14 hours every day, like boot camp. You know, they called it clown college, but it was way more like boot camp. <laughs> would, if they had invited you on the road, would you, would you have wanted to do that? Oh my God. They didn't give me a contract. 33 clowns got in and only 10 got contracts. And I was, I went there to further my goal of becoming a stuntman. Okay. And by the time I graduated, I had legitimately fallen in love with the, the, the circus dream. And I was fucking heartbroken that I didn't get a contract. I, I went back home with my fancy clown costume, living with my sister, and I would have uh, I would have dreams about like I was in the circus, and I would wake up in um, in Albuquerque, New Mexico, like not in the circus, and I would just it was just this wave of depression would come over me, and I would like see who got, who I could sell a bag of weed to that day. <laughs> Now, see, for me, that's not getting in in 97. That's when I started doing stand-up was because I didn't didn't get into Ringling. I was like, I need need to put this energy somewhere. Um, So so one of the questions that I I wanted to to get to you is, you know, when you you hooked up with Tremaine and the the skateboard crew that turned into Jackass, there wasn't a lot of reality television around. And I'm wondering if you were coming up today, if you would have been more attracted to something like, say, America's Got Talent and picking your talents there instead. 
Uh, I don't think America's Got Talent is a particularly new format. I think that uh, I would have not been very attracted to that because it was, it's so sterile, mm-hmm. you know, so like, uh, and, and I know too that Knoxville had uh, been offered a bunch of different shows. Uh, one I remember, there was like a skydive guy who, uh, I don't know, but, but Knoxville was very particular about how he wanted um, the vibe of everything to be. And, and he turned down a lot of things uh, just because he had the vision of, of what Jackass would be. Um, I think I would have pretty well leapt at, at just about anything that I could have done. But, uh, uh, oh, there we go. I didn't have my video on. Um, I would have left it whatever, you know, and, and thankfully, um, Knoxville's higher standards, uh, you know, sort of were the measuring tape. Okay. Cause I think back in the, back in the mid nineties, I'm just trying to think in my own personal history bank right now, as far as like daredevil, type stuff or that mixes performance art. The only person I could remember from that time was Jim Rose. Right? May I guess Jim Rose is more of like a, a talent manager the way I remember. I don't even remember him as a performer. I just remember him as uh, the guy who, you know, has name on the circus and, and didn't pay anybody. <laughs> um, so you knew that had no appeal to you whatsoever. Yeah. Sideshow stuff wasn't really me. Um, I always found sideshow stuff to be kind of one dimensional. Um, you know, a little bit like, okay, you know, we've seen it. Like, like I wanted stuff that was like actually really funny and interesting, you know? Um, but, uh, but yeah. And at that time in the nineties there, you know, when, when the jackass concept was just brewing up, um, there was survivor. I remember like, uh, being really glued. I, myself, I was glued to the first season of Survivor. Everybody was, uh, yeah. I suppose Fear Factor might have been around that time, but yeah. I, never, I never would have been attracted to that. <laughs> um, yeah, reality TV was certainly in its infancy. Yeah. Uh, we also didn't get much of a chance to talk about the actual special, Gnarly. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we got into into much deeper stuff, I think. But one of the uh, one of the things in Gnarly that really struck a chord with me was how much your father plays into it. Both, yeah. Both in terms of the footage you show people, and then him on stage. And I wonder how important it has been for you that your father has been so accepting. It's a big deal, man. Um, when, uh, yeah, of course, my dad was a very successful businessman. He, uh, you know, was the president of Pepsi Cola in Brazil when I was a toddler. He uh, went on to become the president of Nabisco, I think, everywhere. Um, it was pretty remarkable, the success that he had and the privilege I grew up with. And um, I would say there was, it was, you know, and I, it was understood that I was expected to go to to university and to to make something of myself. Like the standards for me were 
were uh, clearly intended to be very high. And uh, before I was even out of high, I mean, I was just a problem kid, like growing up. Before I was out of high school, it was clear I had issues with drugs and alcohol. I went to the University of Miami and just straight failed out. Uh, it just wasn't looking good. Um, I wasn't even in contact with my dad when I bailed out of the University of Miami because I wasn't up to anything that uh, he would have been happy about. You know, I was, wasn't doing anything whatsoever that he would have even approved of. And I didn't have the heart to call him up to share news that he wouldn't consider good news. So I just was, was just, I just disappeared for like six months. He didn't even know where I was. And that was super, super shitty, man. Um, then uh, when I was back in touch, it was all, oh, I'm going to be a stunt man. I mean, this is going to be great. And dad was not fucking feeling that at all. And uh, he actually went like to the library to research like CGI, which <laughs> Of course, at this time, I and mean, we're talking about like 1994, like 1995, <laughs> before the fucking internet. Right. Dad's in the library researching how computers are going to make stunt people obsolete to try to make a case for why I should. Oh, that's why he was you looking know, Okay. Yeah. He was, he was trying to say, look, you know, they don't need stuntmen anymore because they've got computers uh, digitally creating stunts. So, you know, when the, so I urge you to not fucking try and do that and so i was like oh okay well shit dad like i'll uh get a crazy crew of dudes together and we'll cruise around we'll fucking do shit live <laughs> you know like <laughs> i i mean it was just pitiful um and then uh then came the clown college thing where i went to clown college to try to further my goal of becoming a stuntman and dad was just not impressed you know he wasn't fucking feeling the clown thing and uh uh, then not long after I graduated from clown college, uh, maybe about a year after clown college, still having not made any fucking money at all. Like not, not a dollar had anybody paid me for anything I was doing. Dad, uh, like said, he, he initiated a conversation with me in which he said, I, 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 I feel I owe it to you to acknowledge that I've done a disservice. He says, I feel I've done a disservice to you by not supporting you in this, this path that you've chosen. You know, you've made it clear that you're committed to it. And just like I didn't pick the path my dad wanted for me, like I see that you're committed to it and, and I, I want to pledge my support to you, you know? And it's just so fucking cool that dad did that that he said that before I had any success. Like there was absolutely no part of that where dad was like jumping on the bandwagon because <laughs> things had gone my way. You know, right. I always say, I frequently say that, um, you know, that this great relationship I have with my father isn't uh, like our relationship isn't good because I'm successful. Like rather I would say that I'm successful because the relationship with my dad is good. And, okay. and I really mean that because when he pledged to support me, it put a lot of wind in my sails. And I, uh, 
remember like the next time I, I saw the, the commercial on television for a show called Real TV where they were trying to acquire crazy home video footage. Do you have anything caught on tape that we should see? And I, and I, call, I called up the number and I was like, yeah, I've got a bunch of shit that you guys need, you know, like badly. And so I sent them my videotape and they called back saying that they wanted to uh, pay me $500 for exclusive rights to, to, to like this great footage. <laughs> and, uh, and I didn't, I was like, what does exclusive mean? They said, oh, well, that means that we own it like entirely and they, they, you don't own it anymore. And I was like, well, fuck that sucks. You know, like <laughs> 500 bucks. And I remember like, I really wanted to be on real TV. This was way before Jackass and everything. And, uh, I, I called up, I called up my dad. I said, dad, dad, these people, they're talking about exclusive. And my dad just said, just like, Hey, calm down. Uh, it's real simple. You know, dad just broke down. He said, it's really simple. You know, you, uh, you, you need to determine for yourself what is a deal breaker. He says, from the way that, that you're talking, it sounds like exclusivity is a deal breaker. He says, so draw your line in the sand and stick to it. He says, why don't you call him back and say, I'm not okay with exclusivity. You can have non-exclusive rights and you got to give me a thousand. <laughs> and uh, he said, make that your line in the sand and stick to it. So I called him back. I said, non-exclusive, but a thousand bucks. And they agreed to it. Boom. And uh, that was like, that represented the first time where my, my aspirations of being a stuntman, like an idiot, you know, like <laughs> entertainer guy, uh, you know, actually brought my dad and I closer together, you know? And, um, ever since then, dad's, uh, like been in my corner, you know, he doesn't love all the shit I do, but, um, he understands it. You know, he fucking super enjoys like all the business side of everything. Like he loves to, to be in the loop with, with my reps and stuff, you know, uh, they can't stand it when dad gets, uh, gets looped in because he just, he's just like another layer of like, Oh, we got to do, we got to deal with Mr. Glover. <laughs> you know, just, he's, uh, yeah, he, I think the word is onerous. He's, uh, he's a lot. He's, he's a lot with all his questions and his, you know, like, but, uh, but he makes people think and, 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 uh, and yeah, he really enjoys it, you know, and, and he's been retired for a long time. So, yeah, that's my relationship with dad. Uh, he doesn't need to, to approve. He doesn't need to, to like it all. But, it, you know, we've been at it for long enough that he understands it and he really enjoys being involved, like, on, on the, the, in the business of it. Well, and the fact that he's stuck with you through thick and thin – I mean, from, from being a nobody to being famous to be, to hitting rock bottom to 12 years clean and yeah. sober, it's like, it's, it's quite a, a wild ride and he's been there for the whole time. Yeah, no doubt. It's, uh, I mean, granted when I was, you know, in the throes of active addiction, uh, our relationship was very much on my terms and, and, uh, you know, it was a choice between a relationship on my terms or, or no relationship at all. So there was, uh, you know, a great deal of walking on eggshells and, you know, really just not bringing up the, 
the elephant in the room, which was my addiction. And um, yeah, I had a, it's just a lot better, you know? No, that reminds me uh, with my parents that we had very much a don't ask, don't tell policy with regard to my addiction. So, yeah, I mean, that's how it is, man. You know, a lot of, uh, I'd say like you know, most addicts, you know, kind of are only able to stay active in their addiction with the, uh, you know, financial enabling, all kinds of, uh, you know, enabling. But in my case, like, I uh, really was financially self-sufficient. I was able to dictate the terms of the relationship. You know, like, there was no house to kick me out of. There was no, you know. And then I remember when, uh, when I did get sober, I remember telling my dad that he had to go to Al-Anon. I was like, dad, <laughs> you gotta get him. You gotta get an Al-Anon because this whole thing. And, you know, so dad, so dad went to Al-Anon and yeah. it was so, so fucking funny. He says, he says like, you know, okay, well I've been going to these Al-Anon meetings. I've been checking it out. And I just get the sense that, that these people are in there for help with their own problems and I'm fine. <laughs> He's like, I'm, I'm fine. I, I, I don't need any help. I'm just there to be supportive of you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I don't need help with my own shit. <laughs> and, uh, and I was like, Oh dad, you're hilarious. Why don't you just hand me a, a beer and a joint and call it a day? <laughs> uh, oh. But yeah, but yeah, and, and, and to, he's, just a, he's just a hilarious guy. Dad is a, so logic driven he's 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 classic uh one other question i wanted to ask you about about gnarly specifically was how how much time did you have to spend working out the the logistics of the opening stunt with the with the truck ride from california to colorado um i mean it was a lot it was like getting the whole jackass gang together in uh in one spot um for the first time in in nearly a decade was uh was a big deal man um so there was the that that level of planning there was hiring um the billboard truck you know the through the company there like getting them uh you know to agree to be co-conspirators in this crime that we were committing to tape me to it and drive down the highway for hundreds of miles. Um, logistic. We, we didn't even really fucking plan the logistics of like getting me on there very much. Like I can't even remember if uh, the initial plan was to even have straps. I, I had to have had a plan. The one, the one thing we did plan that was to be able to mount a box over me. Once I was fixed to the side of the truck, Mm-hmm. We needed we needed to be able to drive out of LA with impunity, and we would never have gotten out of LA with me taped to the side of the truck, just out visible. Right at so, a red light, yeah. So after we taped me, then we mounted a box over me. So okay. I was still, I you know I was still stuck to the side of the truck, but there was a box over me for uh, you know the the ride. And we got as far as Barstow, and then we unscrewed the box and uh, just let me 
be out in the wind. <laughs> but you don't, I'm getting the sense you don't, whether it's that stunt or other stunts, you're not quite like, um, who's the, the mountain climber, the solo, Alex Hornold? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Where uh-huh. I, thought, I thought he was just a crazy mountain climber, but if you watch the documentary, you see how, how many months and years he planned that climb with gear before he eventually did it solo. Right. You're, you're not quite like that in terms of planning for a stunt? I mean, it depends. Um, it depends. And uh, uh, I like to give myself pretty good odds of, uh, of pulling it off. Um, but at the end of the day, I just want to get the footage, man. You know, <laughs> and, and there are a lot of scenarios in which less planning equals better footage. <laughs> right, because that first, that first reaction, that first attempt is going to have so much more emotion to it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's always a different situation. The only other thing that I'm, that I'm wondering is 12 years. What's, what's crazier to you from when we, we first met up like some 10, 12 years ago that you're, you're still doing stand-up, that you're still doing stunts, or that you're still clean and sober? Which is the, which is the harder, hardest to believe of those three? Man, they're all, they're all pretty remarkable in their own right. I would say maybe stand up. Like um, when you know when we met and I was doing that uh, that stand up set, it was it was such a question mark. You know, it was more like I I, I was I really wanted to do it because I, I, I had like a a level of. Like I don't know, I felt ashamed of how traumatized I was for when I had gotten up on stage and bombed, and I was like, I wanted to show myself that that I wasn't going to hide from it, that I was going to go, you know, get get out there and do it. And um, I, I wouldn't have pictured that I'd be doing stand up, like that it would turn into what it did. You know, um, I had no idea that that uh, that I could have like an actual career doing that. And still be doing it 12 years. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, uh, I mean, granted, Jackass has been only a few jobs, like very few and far between. But it's remarkable that uh, that stand-up comedy has, uh, you know, has been the, the bigger source of revenue for me in, in my career. You know, that I would never would have believed. Like, you know, and um, so grateful to have, uh, to really give a shit about it, you know, because I think a lot of people in my position trying it out, like, would fizzle fizzle out, you know, like if it wasn't working, it wouldn't continue. You know, clearly now it's been over, it's been over 10 years, like evidently, it worked, you know, and, and the more it worked, the more I wanted to do it. And, and, uh, just the harder I went. So it's, uh, something I'm really proud of. I'm really grateful for. Well, Steve, I'm really grateful that you gave, uh, gave me a second, uh, second time around to speak with you. 
It was the right thing to do, man. I didn't let you uh, say shit the, the last time we spoke. And now, uh, now at least uh, I got to babble uh, in response to some actual questions. Uh, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And uh, now get back to it. Hey, I, I, I want to hear more about that tape party you were talking about. So get back to that. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a pretty big secret, but uh, it's... Uh, it's it's there's something there's there's a project over here. <laughs> All right. Well, I look it's, forward. Uh, I look forward to finding out about that along with everybody else. I th- yeah. I think uh, yeah. It's gonna gonna give, give me give me a week or so. You should be hearing about it. <laughs> okay. Great. All right. <laughs> cool, man. Thank you so much, brother. Thank you so much. All right. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.